Hello, it's Thursday 15th of December. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's final podcast of the year, Gary Bauman and I will review the top 10 travel news talking points from across the region in 2022. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So here it is, our end of the year show, and what a year it's been. As we celebrate the third anniversary of launching the Southeast Asia Travel Show, it's been a genuine pleasure to be looking ahead to a new year with a degree, I guess to quote the phrase of the moment, of cautious optimism. So to round out 2022, Hannah and I have selected 10 talking points that capture the roller coaster ride for travel and tourism in Southeast Asia that has been the last 12 months. Hannah, there's plenty to talk about. Let's dive in. And the first pick, I guess, kind of speaks for itself. It does, doesn't it? The return of travel. Um, I mean, just remember, and we, we keep saying this, but it's so true. Just remember where we were 12 months ago. Travel had just started to just get off the starting blocks, particularly for domestic tourism. International travel was starting to creak open. And then, bam, Omicron hit just around Christmas time. Thailand, Singapore, um, you know, suspended new applications for their vaccinated travel lanes for their test and go um, scheme. And it, we were left, I think, you know, looking into 2022 with quite a lot of pessimism, actually, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Philippines had announced quite a liberal reopening, uh, I think at the end of November, and then it just rolled back on that and pushed it into the new year. I think actually the only place in the region that was that was open was Cambodia. Northeast Asia hadn't opened at all. We, we had to wait several months for that. And then we had to wait really, as you said just then, for Singapore and for Thailand to, to, to sort of accelerate what they'd already started. They, they suspended that for a few months and it didn't really get cracking until the second quarter of this year, did it? So this time last year, um, and you said there, we, we had a little bit of pessimism. We weren't really sure what, what was going to happen. It just seemed like, well, you know, we're starting next year, which was this year, pretty similarly to the year before. And I, I remember we, were, we we signed off the year quite gloomily, but this year, Hannah, a lot different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yes, there are these headwinds, <laughs> to use the other popular phrase, economic headwinds that are facing the region um, in 2023. And there are lots going to be lots of challenges, but... We're open. People are vaccinated. People are traveling. People, you know, don't seem to be so worried about COVID anymore. We're in a completely different place, I think, mentality wise. I think that's the key point. I've noticed this in Malaysia at KLA Airport. It took a long time, I think, for people to even look as though they felt confident to travel. But over the last month that I've been traveling through there quite, quite, re quite frequently, I've just noticed that people just feel like they're back in the travel mode. I mean, I know the numbers aren't quite the same, but the people that are traveling um, just feel like they've got their, their travel mojo back, which is great news. Absolutely. So shall we move on to the second point? The second point, which obviously, Hannah, has to feature probably the country we've spoken about the most over mm -hmm. the last three years, uh, and that will be Thailand. The Thailand has finally opened, hasn't it? But it was a protracted mm. process and it took, well, what, a whole year? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Phuket Sandbox, again, how many times do you think we've said Phuket Sandbox over the last <laughs> over the last year and a half? So that opened the 1st of July last year, 2021. Then we had the testing go. Then eventually they eliminated uh, the Thai um, 
pass on the, the Thailand pass on the 1st of July this year. And, you know, they've just announced they've hit 10 million arrivals. But there's a big but there, isn't there, Gary? There's a couple of big buts, really. I mean, one is that we've been talking throughout the year that, you know, obviously this is going to be, again, Thailand will be the most visited country in Southeast Asia, probably by, by a fair margin this year, although obviously not as big a margin as it was in 2019. 10 million arrivals this year probably will, will surpass that comfortably, maybe 10.4, uh, 10.3, 10.4 million this year. Now, that's a, it's just, but that's a quarter of what they had in 2019. So there are a number of factors there that I think are quite interesting, obviously, one is the, the absence of China. We'll come to that later. But China only accounted for a quarter of all visitors to, to Thailand in 2019. So there's still a big gap to, to, to catch up. Um, I think there's two, two parts. One, obviously, that Thailand didn't really get kick, didn't really kick on until the second quarter of this year. So it's been a very compressed year for arrivals. And so, you know, you would have added on January, February, March. If you'd added those three months, they would have you know, generated more arrivals. But generally, the whole thing looks as though demand is much, much weaker. You would expect that Asia is still playing catch up. There haven't been enough flights. And I think that's one of the things uh, I was on the OAG webcast yesterday. And there was a diagram that showed um, how Thailand's capacity really is only about 50 percent of where it was in 2019, and which shows you that although this recovery is in place and we kind of assume that Thailand is leading the game, the flight numbers in and out um, are still relatively low compared to what we would expect them to be, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, you know, especially if you look at the flight capacity and that's the major limiting factor, you know, that's, that's holding back international travel right now is the fact that there aren't seats on planes or perhaps there are a few, but they are a very high price, again, because there's that lack of capacity, you know, demand is far outstripping supply um, right now. But you're right, you know, Thailand down 50% still in, in in 2022 in terms of annual capacity for seats versus 2019. Um, you contrast that with a country like Indonesia. This is actually kind of surprising, but Indonesia are only down by about 27% versus 2019. Um, and I would imagine that a lot of that is down to domestic flights. Yeah, almost certainly. Well, it is certainly. I mean, you know, Indonesia itself is almost almost continental in size, isn't it? So, yes, absolutely. That that explains that. But, you know, that is an interesting fact that uh, this Thailand is 50 percent. I found that quite eye watering. Um, but that does mm. explain. I mean, that explains a lot. But we have seen this year the airlines extremely cautious about how they're recovering, uh, very, very disciplined on capacity to keep their yields and to keep their, their flight uh, fares high. Some airlines are recording quite good profits at the moment. So, um, you know, then the, the, the trajectory into next year probably isn't for, for flight prices to come down and maybe not for flight frequencies to increase, which, as we know, Hannah, back in 2019, um, Thailand really, really benefited from the frequency of travel, people traveling there more often. Uh, and that's not happening at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think it's also lacking capacity to some of the secondary cities as well, cities like Chiang Mai, or, um, well, we, we have seen that, you know, Phuket was very much limited at the beginning with that lack of direct flights that is now ramping back up. It's, it's down to those secondary cities, not just Bangkok or the, the main tourist hubs. Talking of which, that segues mm. nicely into point number three, Hannah. Mm. This, is, this is a story that kind of went a little bit under the radar. I think we didn't really cover it in much detail. Um, but no. it is an important um, development that happened in October. And this is the ASEAN-EU aviation agreement. Uh, talk us through that a little bit. 
Yeah, so this was signed um, in October and it's an agreement between the EU and ASEAN governing um, the aviation. And what's kind of significant around this are a few things. So one is that this new agreement um, supersedes 140 existing bilateral agreements that they already have that are completely different, right, between different countries and different states. And it, it just creates a lot of bureaucracy. So the whole idea around having this bilateral agreement is to um, you know, make things more efficient, basically, to open up um, competition. Um, it's going to allow um, more flights between um, the EU and ASEAN. And in fact, it's meant to link more than 100 EU-ASEAN country pairs, which don't yet have that kind of legal framework for services um, between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, we talk about ASEAN, EU, and it sounds, it's it's an amorphous number. But when you actually look at the figures, this is this involves 37 different countries. So the 10 countries of ASEAN, the 27 countries of the European Union, which of course no longer includes the UK, the UK misses out on this agreement. So there's, a, as you said, Hannah, the, the, the actual potential size and the potential impact of this are huge in the years to come. They, it still has to be ratified by each country. Um, but the interesting thing, I think, is that it allows, as you said, more flights between each country, third and fourth freedom rights, but it also allows a limited number of fifth freedom rights, which is where it actually starts to get quite interesting because uh, that's where airlines can fly, say, from, I don't know, London to Singapore and to Manila. So you can actually um, connect uh, three destinations in one. That's where it gets a little bit more interesting. Those are on a restricted uh, rotor at the moment, but probably there's this scope in future to increase. Generally, though, overall, you would say, Hannah, this, this has a real potential to in increase uh, the numbers of flights and, and passengers and cargo um, between the two regions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other interesting thing is that it proves that sometimes ASEAN can work. Um, you know, and we, we have been um, quite critical, I think, at times of, of ASEAN on the podcast, just, you know, this this whole idea of their vaccine passports or what did they call them regional travel corridors that never came off um myanmar of course which has just been a complete disaster but here's one success story for asean that they have managed to to get this agreement in place with another block as well so this kind of block to block concept can work it would be nice to see that carried out on other areas yeah i would agree i think i think hannah the cynic in me says that this is this is a, an example of where the 10 ASEAN countries actually identify and move towards a common interest. They've all, they all have an interest in this. So none of them could miss out. So uh, it's kind of fear of missing out, I would say. <laughs> I think so. I think you're right. So let's move on to our fourth pick. Um, and this is quite a remarkable one, actually, I think, Gary, isn't it? Yeah, this is a really interesting story. So this is Singapore, which, as we said, uh, Hannah, was one of the three countries, Singapore, Thailand and Cambodia, which really led the way in reopening travel in Southeast Asia, going back to the end of 2021, but certainly um, from this year. And Singapore, it's an interesting story because, you know, Singapore Airlines recapitalized. It, it, it's been prominent in, in its stories. Uh, it's been increasing its capacities quite a lot. We've heard a lot about business travel coming into Singapore, the numbers of visitors to Singapore. But the interesting fact, really, is, is that hotel room rates, which has been higher than ever throughout quite a lot of the year, and particularly in September this year, when they actually had a average room rate through the month, which was a 14-year high, Hannah. 
Now, that's fascinating because if you actually look at the number of arrivals which Singapore is expecting in 2022, it's going to be the lowest for two decades if you take out 2021 and 2020. Singapore will have less visitors now than I think in the last time was 2004. Uh, 2004, yeah. So in what's driving these high um, rates, you know, is, is, is it supply and demand anymore or is this actually just a, a move towards um, higher yield tourism policy? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, obviously, September, they had the Formula One. And that's, you know, the Singapore Tourism Board have, have said that that has been what's driven um, this very high room rates. And the room rate also continued to be high, even in October, though, you know, so it's 283 sing dollars in September. Um, it was around 280 in October. So it, it didn't really drop off very much. It'll be interesting to see where, where this goes, you know, November, December peak school, school holiday period as well, is it going to stay high? Like you say, does this really signal a shift from hotels to um, that kind of high yield? May well do. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's, it's to, to, be, to, be, to be continued, really. But you're absolutely right that, you know, Singapore um, really, really fed off the, the, the Formula One season. And then, as Brett Henry said on, on our show last week, the three of us were down in, in Singapore in October for um, ITB Asia. And it was a big MICE month. There were a lot of events going on. Even during ITB Asia, there was a big, I think, uh, Cybertech um, show in the same building at the same time. And I think October was a very, very strong MICE month for for Singapore, which I guess mm -hmm. helped to push up the rates. Corporate rates obviously tend to always push up more than leisure rates do. So you're right. We have to see how this shakes down. But I just thought it was an interesting overall phenomenon, given the fact that, you know, Singapore probably will just about or may not quite hit 6 million visitors this year, which is really, really low co comparatively to what it was uh, drawing during the 2010s. And yet hotel rates are so high. Yeah, I mean, what I'm just wondering now, I'm just thinking about it. I wonder whether this is because there aren't as many, perhaps lower end hotels being being booked. Maybe maybe this is to do with the fact that perhaps more four star, five star hotels are seeing higher occupancy. And therefore, maybe that's bringing the uh, room rates up. I don't know. I'll have, have to check into the numbers on the, on the Singapore Tourism Board website and see what the split is between the different hotel occupancies yeah it's certainly one that we'll, we'll track and follow over the next few months because it, it was you know was it anomaly was it simply just circumstances at that time or is this a longer term trend we'll have to see to be continued um number five and you know we will talk about china in a bit we have to um but i think we need to talk about india as well don't we and this year has really been the the year that everybody wants the indian traveler yeah, predictably so. I mean, I think without the the huge China market, it was obvious that, you know, the, the market that everybody has been talking about for years, really, everybody's been talking about the potential of India. It's a massive country, has a huge, the fastest growing economy in the world, well, certainly in Asia Pacific anyway. Um, and, you know, the potential for air travel out of the country and into the country is huge, um, never has quite captured that potential. Number of reasons for that. We know that um, India itself, the the, uh, the wealth uh, versus poverty gap is huge, and it's still only a small proportion of the country that's actually flying. But that said, you know, we were starting to see before the pandemic more Indian travelers coming into certain countries in Southeast Asia. And without China this year, countries have tried to, to optimize that, haven't they? Mm, yeah, I mean, we have seen um, 
airlines like Vietjet adding lots of flights between Vietnam and India, but not even just to the the, the main cities, to the, the second tier cities as well. Um, just this last week, I've seen news headlines from Cambodia, from Bali about wanting to have direct flights to India. Um, Malaysia, of course, was was really hoping to focus on the Indian market and that initiative was scuppered somewhat by the online visa system having to be suspended and Indians having to go physically to the embassies to actually go and apply for the visa, which is not great. In terms of source markets to Thailand, I think Indians were number one. Um, I think that they, or maybe it's Indians or Malaysians are number one, but they're, they're in the, the top two, certainly. I think they're number two to Singapore. Um, so it's it's big and even Singapore Airlines has, has made moves, haven't they? Yeah, well, this, this is a very interesting story. It's happened. Uh, I mean, it's been, it's been on the cards for a while, but Air India has been taken over. We knew this by the by the Tata brothers, the Tata Group, um, and that was it was merging with Vistara, which Vistara is partly owned by Singapore Airlines. So Singapore Airlines has taken a twenty five percent stake in the new enlarged Air India, which is it's a huge investment. It's uh, it's committing funds over a number of years. Um, to a big, big project, Air India wants to become one of the world's largest airlines and wants to really optimize both its outbound market and its inbound market, but also its geographic positioning as well. A lot of potential, as we said, people have been talking about the potential of the India market for at least a decade, probably more. Um, but Singapore certainly committed a lot of money to this. It doesn't have a great track record in investing in other airlines, but I guess it sees India as a huge uh, opportunity to bring traffic to to and from Singapore, but also I think to target into other markets, particularly North America, and also to tackle the, you know, that issue that has really, I think, emerged during the pandemic is that the Middle Eastern hubs, also hubs like uh, Istanbul, have really, really sort of escalated their importance globally. Uh, and Singapore and India look like they're, they're teaming up to, to try and counteract that, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. It would be very interesting again to see how uh, this Singapore Airlines partnership and pans out. So let's move on to a different part of Asia, East Asia, and Japan. Um, and of course, Japan reopening. And you're probably saying, but this is the Southeast Asia travel show. Why are you guys talking about Japan again? Um, but it, it's really, you know, it transforms that North East Asia, Southeast Asia dynamic. Um, Japan is incredibly popular as an outbound destination from Southeast Asia. Japanese tourists love to travel into Southeast Asia by now lifting all of those restrictions to come back into Japan. It makes travel a lot easier and kind of leads the way for some of the other East Asian countries as well, which have been very reluctant to reopen your know, countries like uh, Taiwan, for example, or Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, it happened in clusters. It, it was so reminiscent, wasn't it, of what we'd seen in South, Southeast Asia several months before is that one or two countries lead the way and then others follow suit quite quickly uh, and in a very similar way, this, this sort of clustering. But Japan led the way. And Hannah, you were there when Japan actually announced its reopening. It was a big celebration for the country, really, after uh, a long period because, you know, the Japanese market inbound, outbound and domestically before the pandemic was, was booming. It was really thriving. Uh, and then it had this massive shutdown, which impacted people's livelihoods, the economy, everything, and also the sentiment, because Japanese are great travelers. But as you said, it has all these these different impacts as well, because it really reignited this Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia connectivity, which was completely lost during the pandemic and was so vital to both regions. But you were there. Give us a flavor of what it was like to actually be there at the time. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, I, I made two trips. So I made one in September, one in November. And just the difference between the two was was incredible. So when I flew out in September, I still had to get a visa. Um, still had to do very complicated online system to get in. The plane was pretty much empty. Every single person had a row to themselves. Contrast that with my November trip and the plane was packed. Um, there was there were barely two or three seats empty on the whole plane. And this is a, an A350. It's it's not a small plane. Um, so there's, there's really that will to travel. Just just waiting for my plane back um, in Narita, I was surrounded by Thai travelers, by Indonesian travelers. I could see two Viet jet planes out on the tarmac. Um, you know, Southeast Asia is coming to Japan in, in numbers and that's starting to be reflected in their arrival numbers as well, where I think Southeast Asia makes about 25%, I think, in October. Yeah, I agree. I think we're, we're starting to see as well, aren't we, in, in the Japanese media, similar stories that we saw probably in Thailand media a, a while ago is that, oh, you know, the, the recovery isn't happening as fast as we hoped it would. It's not quite meeting expectations. It's going to be a slow growth. It's, we've seen this. This is what happens. It takes time to rebuild confidence to travel, booking uh, windows to, to realign airlines to start putting on more capacity. So it takes time to do that. But, you know, 2023, particularly we'll talk about China in a minute, particularly if China reopens, uh, Japan it has uh, a lot lot going for it, I think, in 2023. And it, it could be a really quite fast recovery year. I think. Well, let's hope for Japan's sake. So on to our next one, number seven. Um, and this is the fact that physical travel fairs, conferences and mice are back. Um, you know, obviously, Gary, you and I are both were at ITB Asia in person in October. And it was fantastic to reconnect um, with old friends. But consumer travel fairs are back as well in the, in the region. So um, Natas Travel Fair in Singapore, you know, something like 49% of the visitors bought travel packages. Uh, Mata Fair um, in Malaysia exceeded its target. Next year, it's hoping to have 250,000 visitors over um three days. Again, I think Astindo held their travel fair. Uh, Philippines uh, Travel Agents Association held theirs. Um, physical travel fairs are back and consumers are visiting them. Yeah, it shows you just the, the demand for travel and, and how people feel that, you know, after so long, it took a while, I think, for people to recalibrate their, their minds and their, their, their determination to travel again. But it does seem like it's back now. And, you know, you, Apart from, as you said earlier, Hannah, we have <clears throat> looming over us a global recession. We have all these these headwinds. People do want to travel. There is still, and it is a real cliche, but there is still pent up demand to be released. I guess the big factor for 2023 is price elasticity. You know, how much are people going to be prepared to pay for travel? Because it doesn't look overall across the board as though flight prices are going to come down. Um, will people be prepared to pay to travel? Yeah, exactly. Well, once that initial pent up demand is gone, is there still that will or are people going to sink? Hang on a minute. Let's just wait. Just wait six months. Let's see if the flight prices come back down. Maybe. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So talking about airlines, Hannah, let's uh, let's move on to number eight. This is a pretty interesting story. I have to admit, I didn't see this one coming. I don't know if you did. Um, but what, what's, the, what's this? This is Air Asia making headlines yet again. They're good at that. <laughs> they are. I, I swear every week I write up another story about AirAsia. Um, but yes, last week's big one um, was that they're going to launch an airline in Cambodia. So this is, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting on a number of levels. One, you know, we, we had this story uh, that, that came out a little bit confused that AirAsia X was, was going to be merged in with all, basically the, all of the different AirAsia 
group were all going to be merged together into one aviation group and then it came out no AirAsia X is going to be kind of merged within the AirAsia aviation group but all of the airlines are going to be operating separately and then came this announcement that they're going to open up uh, a new joint venture in Cambodia. Yeah, absolutely, which is which is startling. And I thought there were some very interesting points that came out of it. Two or three quotes from Tony Fernandez. You can always say Tony Fernandez's quotes are interesting because they always are. Um, <laughs> one of those that he said, which I thought was particularly poignant, was he said that all of our future airlines, including this one, will be based in ASEAN. This is a region we know well, which is true. Um, but he obviously didn't point out the fact they got quite badly burned in Japan and India previously. Um, so it makes sense to, mm-hmm. to be in ASEAN. But he also said, and I thought this is pretty interesting, we are confident of achieving profitability in the first year. I mean, that's a bold statement, isn't it? In the in the times that we're in right now. I mean, certainly for Cambodia, this this could be a great thing. Um, what I, I I think, I mean, this is this has got to be an international play, really. I think um, you know we have seen that domestic aviation in Cambodia. Yes, there is, but I I, I don't believe it is particularly big. And, we interviewed Stephen King um, from Cambodia Airports not too long ago, and I, I think he was he was telling us along similar lines that domestic aviation market is not huge in Cambodia. So clearly, they must just see this to be that kind of international play. Are they going to get that flight between Cambodia and India? Um, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about this. Stephen mentioned this. Um, I think everybody we've, we've spoken to in Cambodia over the last two, three years have mentioned this. That it is a pretty underserved market. You know, there is an opportunity there for Asian. They, they, they're hoping to grasp it and get first mover advantage. Makes sense. But as we've seen, Hannah, you know, this is an interesting period. There are a lot of airlines. There are a lot of uh, planes getting back into the skies. But we have seen a few new airlines, which, you know, going back two years ago to the the real dark days of COVID didn't seem like it would be likely to happen, but it is. Yeah. So we've had my airline in Malaysia, SKS Airways in Malaysia as well. So another two in Malaysia just this year. Um, and even if you're looking at a country like Vietnam, um, we had Viet Travel Airlines who were only operating domestically and now they've launched their first international route as well. So now they're operating Hanoi to Bangkok. Um, competition is 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 heating up and it just comes back to that are we going to see that overcapacity in at, at least some domestic markets yeah interesting times interesting times ahead for 2023 new airlines in the sky hannah who would have thought mm. so the next one i mean and this is a, this is a story that's got your name all over it gary china <laughs> the end of covid zero finally Finally, and very, very quickly, it's moving at a very, very fast pace. I think it's, this has taken everybody a little bit by surprise, um, just how quickly uh, Xi Jinping has decided to dismantle COVID zero very, very quickly. Uh, we're seeing incredible movements, uh, things like shutting down of the, the healthcare app, which just dominated people's lives for nearly three years. <clears throat> That's been closed down. <clears throat> Domestic travel is looking as though it's back on the agenda. There are talks that pretty soon, perhaps in January, uh, the border will at least partially reopen between China and Hong Kong. Uh, that's a very, very important move um, psychologically, but also those those economies are so conjoined together. Uh, and pretty swiftly after that, you know, we're hearing a lot of rumors about discussions between foreign governments and China, foreign airlines and China, um, about the return of international travel. I think at the moment it's impossible to make any predictions. Things are moving very, very fast, and you know, this is 
going to happen but it's it's you know you, you see people on linkedin making these almost ridiculous um predictions of when it's going to happen and what's going to happen when i just think you, you, if you do that you're you're a little bit of a slave to fortune, really, because China is so difficult to second guess. Um, but it's, I think from the China um, social perspective, it's going to be a very, very difficult two months. They're trying to roll out boosters, which they haven't done enough in recent years, has a very old population. Uh, everybody I know in Beijing at the moment either has COVID or they have people in their office, uh, which is you know decimated because people are at home with COVID. It is, it is transmitting very, very fast in China's big cities at the moment. Um, but it's once it gets out to the rural regions where it is really, really troubling because healthcare in those regions isn't strong. Elderly populations are huge. Um, so it's going to be a very, very difficult winter in China. China has to manage that. It has to manage the domestic story, which is going to be uh, quite difficult with its reopening to the world, um, which looks as though it's imminent. Um, but how it actually manages that, we just have to wait and see. Yeah, really uh, one to watch. I think I think it's the one everybody's watching. Yeah, yeah, it's in motion. I think that's mm-hmm. the, the one thing to say is it's definitely in motion. Now. Yeah, and the last one, and this this is our pick. I think simply because it's dominated the headlines over the last couple of weeks, rightly or wrongly. Um, but this is this penal code that has been approved to be implemented in Indonesia, um, and it's you know it's. It's been in the works for how many years, Gary? Years and years, hasn't it? It has, and it's been very controversial for many years. I think there were protests about this, I think, back in 2019. Um, it's been rushed through this time. Um, you know, this, we don't want to get too political in what's happening in mm. Indonesia at the moment, but obviously it, Jokowi is moving towards the end of his, um, his tenure, his second um, period in office. I think that's in 2024. There's a lot of shuffling amongst his... Uh, the people who want to take over from him. So there's a lot of politics going on in <clears throat> Indonesia at the moment. And this is certainly part of that. Um, but as you said, Hannah, it's very, very controversial. And it includes some elements which the, the foreign media have jumped on um, quite obviously. Um, but we've had a very sensationalist view of it, haven't we? We have. So the the headlines in Australia, I think, are calling it the Bali Bonk ban. So, of course, the, what the media pick up the most is the fact that this, this criminal the code also um, has elements regarding extramarital sex and cohabitation of unmarried couples. Um, and the so predominantly Western media have been stirring up fears that that means that any unmarried couples who are staying in an Indonesian hotel are liable to be thrown into jail, which is really uh, not true, is it? <laughs> Well, it's not true and it's not helpful either. I mean, I think we had we had a very similar story. I can't remember when this was, Hannah. Was this about three years ago when there was talk of an alcohol ban in mm-hmm. Indonesia and mm-hmm. the media went exactly the same, didn't yeah. they? But nobody will go to Bali anymore because they can't drink beer. Yeah. Yeah, it's sensationalist. It's short-term media and it doesn't really help. You know, the, the, it, there are many, many issues around the criminal code which do require um, people to actually look at them very, very closely because they have big mm-hmm. societal impact and we have to look at those yes. and they have to be taken very, very seriously. And, you know, ethically minded travelers or or travelers who are concerned about local communities and that kind of thing should look into some of the elements of this criminal code. Um, but the the sex ban is just a sensationalist version. And we, I think we have to be a bit careful. Hannah, both you and I were invited by quite a few media to comment on this and we mm. declined a few of them. I did speak to Al Jazeera about it. Um, and we'll put the link up on, on the show notes. But mm. yeah, it's, it's one of those that the story will come and go, even if it comes into... 
you know, this has to go through, the, I think, the constitutional court in Indonesia. So it takes a long time for this to actually um, become actual law, perhaps even up to three years. Um, but, you know, writing these stories right now just doesn't achieve anything. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's click, it's clickbait, isn't it? It is. It's clickbait. They, they just love to be able to have headlines around sex, don't they? Um, and they know that that's, that's what will get the, the clicks. But unfortunately, it's not at all helpful for a very, you know, a, a tourism industry in recovery right now. Um, you know, these, these penal codes, like you say, Gary, they're not going to go into um, into law for maybe three years. There's a chance of appeals being made and everything else between now and then. Um and so all of these headlines, you know, I, a few great ones. Uh, sex outside of marriage could land you in jail in Bali. Aussie tourists in Bali could be jailed for having sex, capitalised, outside marriage under strict new law in line with Indonesian values. That's not helpful for the industry at all. And I'm just fed up. I'm really fed up of the media sensationalising things, getting things wrong, and it just has a massive impact on the local tourism industry. Yeah, it really, really does. And uh that's that's a kind of a sad way to end um, our, our mm. roundup of the year, but we're not going to do that, are we, Hannah? We've actually added a number eleven that would actually give us a little bit of a, <laughs> an uplift before we before we sign off. And I think this is an interesting thing, Hannah, because we started the show by saying, "Well, look back to twelve months ago and where we are right now." We've had the return of travel this year, as we've had travel returning. We've had lives going back to normal. Ish. We've seen some COVID era things disappear from daily life, haven't we? And we, so we've uh, we put together a list of a few of those. Yeah, just to cheer ourselves up. Um, so pre and post flight testing, that's gone. That's great. Remember those. Yeah. Quarantine, of course, the big one. QR code health apps. What are those QR codes that are just gone. knocking around now on, on shop windows, but no one's doing anything with them? Yeah. Mask mandates largely i'd say still still varies but generally if you're outside now in southeast asia you're probably not required to wear a mask yeah hand sanitizer you don't see that much anymore it was everywhere wasn't it at one point Mm, yeah yeah um and covid zero thanks to china (laughs) finally finally Finally, I think it's, I mean, COVID zero, I won't talk about this for too long, but it's quite interesting that, you know, China is the remnant of COVID zero. Um, But let's not forget, there were other countries that had COVID zero as well. Australia, New Zealand come to mind. Um, Particularly, there were other countries that were accused of having COVID zero. I think Singapore was one of those. I don't think it ever did, but it, but it did, you know, have quite a strict policy at one point. Um, And just shows you the three years that we've been doing this uh, podcast, Hannah. Mm. Wow. Wow. We've we've had to talk about um, COVID zero and COVID and, you know, everything to go with it for, for most of three years. 2023, will we finally be rid of it? <laughs> I really hope so. That would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> and that brings us to a close of the show for this week and for the year. We hope you enjoyed the podcast throughout 2022. And don't forget, as always, to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep, and if you've missed any of our shows across this year or the previous two years, you can catch up with our full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for 2022. We'll both be back in January to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond. So until then, we'd like to wish all of our listeners, wherever you may be, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 